Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for June 21st, 2018. The Wicked, even for Trump edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. with special guest Ruth Marcus of The Washington Post, who is sitting in for Emily. Hello, Ruth. Hi there. I thought you were going to call it the I Prefer Strong edition. Um, It's my title. I get the title. title. I get to title things, not you. Oops, I'm never coming back. Which which is a sign that he prefers strong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't think. Some woman is coming in to attempt to <laughs> I knew you were re- go retitle, there. I knew it. retitle the show. Uh, that also, you heard John Dickerson of CBS This Morning from New York. Hello, John. Hi. Uh, on this week's GabFest, the evil and stupid and cruel policy of separating migrant children from their parents seems to have been stopped or may have been stopped. What will the long-term impact be of this incredible Trump administration cruelty. My God, I it's I don't even well, we'll talk about it. It's just so shocking. Then the president is happy about the FBI inspector general's report about the Hillary investigation. Should he be then a really fascinating fight over Asian American admissions to Harvard and to New York City's elite public schools? We will talk about this really difficult issue. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before I forget, we have a live show coming up at the Keswick Theater just outside Philadelphia, PA, on July 18th. That's a Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. It's going to be a great show. I hope you join us. Slate.com slash live to get tickets to our July 18th show. I imagine that you, dear listeners, and I spent our Newsweek in the same way. Uh, transfixed with horror at an evil being committed in our name and by our government along the border. President Trump's family separation policy divided more than 2,000 migrant children from their parents. These children have been warehoused in literal warehouses held in metal cages like animals deprived of the love and connection that all children need to their parents and the love and connection and physical affection and and nurturing that all children need. These parents, of course, are being prosecuted, usually for the misdemeanor crime of an illegal border crossing, or in some cases, they're no crime at all since they were seeking asylum, which is quite legal. On Wednesday, the administration prepared an executive order that the president signed to end the separation policy, maybe maybe, 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 and instead house families together in camps. This comes after the president, of course, claimed repeatedly that the law required him to separate children, that he couldn't simply fix it by executive order. This policy change occurred in the face of widespread moral condemnation. And I would say that in my lifetime, the U.S. has committed war crimes. We have killed innocents. We've allowed poverty to flourish. We have worked with despots. Yet, I think there's a strong case to be made that this is the single wickedest action that our government has committed in a really long time because it's intentional. It was intentionally wicked. It was not a byproduct of of some of something. It was an intentional act of wickedness in order to cause misery, and it was aimed at the most vulnerable people in the world. And it made me sick and disgusted, as it made so many others sick and disgusted. So that is my editorializing, which I'm sure there'll be plenty more of. But in any case, Ruth, is this policy change sufficient to stop the cruelty and wickedness that's being done? Uh, Probably not. We don't know. And can I just uh, endorse all of your remarks? 
the probably not is a mild answer to your question because one thing that we do know, and I think of this as the um, a sort of second version of the travel ban in terms of its um, just the failure and sloppiness and failure to plan of its ex- of its conception and execution, but crueler for the reasons that you said, and that the victims are desperate people, desperate parents trying to escape horror in Central America and innocent children. Uh, there's a few things that concern me. One is the capacity of this government to find and reunite the children and with their parents. There seemed to be the, the first answer yesterday when this was announced was, oh, no, no, we're not going to be reuniting. And then that was superseded by, well, we'll get around to reuniting. It's not our policy not to reunite. But these people are not competent to handle this situation. They have inflicted terrible harm on at least 2,000 children. It needs to be a priority of the country, if not the government, to make sure that the pressure remains to get those families reunited as quickly as possible. Then there is the question, which I think is a very big and open question, about whether this executive order, and I'm air quoting here, um, is sufficient to do the task. Because let's just stipulate, having children in cages by themselves is worse than having children in cages with their parents. But effectively, what the president has said is, we are going to house these children together with their families in detention camps. And that is A, problematic, and B, uh, after 20 days, inconsistent with what a federal court has ordered and the federal government has agreed to in what's known as the Flores Settlement Agreement. And so in order for this policy that the president kind of created and announced on the fly yesterday, and it's better that he did it than that he stuck to his strong guns, they are going to have to um, sooner rather than later get the buy-in and acquiescence of people on the other side of the litigation who are going to say, no, you can't hold these children. The whole point has been that children, once they are in the United States, have a due process right to be held in the least restrictive environment available. There are all sorts of alternatives to these family detention camps. And they are going to have a federal judge who has been overseeing this litigation, which has been going on. We talk about it from 1997. I went back and looked yesterday. It's actually stretched back to 1984 when this first came up. Um, So this is um, better. We are better off today than we were yesterday. But the um, ability of this Band-Aid to solve the problem that was created not by Democrats, but by the Trump administration is really up in the air. So, John, the president and the president's advisors and supporters gave many, many different explanations for why they were carrying out this policy of family separation. They said it, the law required it. They, Others hinted, well, it's a chit in a legislative fight. Others said, well, it's the Democrats' fault. But the Washington Post counted 14 different explanations <laughs> for this. What yeah. What do you think was well, the reason that they did it? Why Why did it? the administration decide to go where other administrations had declined, even though the other yeah, administrations the, had contemplated it? Right, because the Obama administration, which one of the things that felt unsorted to me this week, and unfortunately unsorted because it made diffuse the real specific thing that was new, which had the very strong moral element that you um, outlined, which is that the Obama administration kept kids in cages too, but they had come as unaccompanied minors. What was very specific and very new here, uh, and there were several things that were new, but what was specifically new was the taking apart of families. That is the specific thing that happened. So why did it happen? Well, the chief of staff, John Kelly, had um, said that it was going to be used as a deterrent to having people cross the border. Another thing that was new, of course, is that asylum claims for people who entered at non-points of entry, which the Obama administration had adjudicated the asylum claims of people who came at non-points of entry, 
first before then handling their misdemeanor claims. In this case, the the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy was treating them as criminals first um, and basically not handling their asylum claims. The only way your asylum claim would be handled is if you came through a, through a proper point of entry. So that was obviously another big change in addition to the breaking up of families, which no previous administration had done, except in super, super, super limited cases where it, where it was where the family was used as a kind of a cover. We should also note that in addition to the 14 different explanations, the numbers that supposedly kicked off this policy, um, I mean, so there were straight out lies about where this policy had come from. But then there was the the spin that the numbers of people coming in claiming to be families who weren't families that had, had grown by over 300%. But when you looked at the number of families claiming to be families that weren't, um, it amounted to less than 1% of the families coming in. So it was six in 1,000 families coming uh, were not actually appropriate families. And it was it was that threat from the six uh, that supposedly led to the policy. Uh, of the six, I asked Senator Lankford, who's on the uh, Department of Homeland Security Committee, um, whether he had seen any evidence that anybody coming and using the family as a cover was a member of the MS-13 gang. He said he hadn't seen it. So that was another part of the story that wasn't checking out. Um, but I think w- w- what I'd like to know from you, David and Ruth, is why you think... It does one thing that seems to have been different this week, and we should obviously return to the limitations of the executive order because the courts have to act or Congress has to act, and neither may, and we could just be here exact same place in twenty days. Um, why d- did this moment seems different? Um, it seemed like it was going to go through the the predictable pattern of sort of tribalism and everybody gets on both sides and there's what aboutism and and it just kind of goes down and nothing nothing changes but in this case there was at least some change the president had to backtrack uh why was that different can i give a two-word answer it's crying children the audio of the crying children and and not that alone but that sort of encapsulated the fact that America and American citizens for all of our failings and failures and all of our tribalism are fundamentally, most of us, good and decent people with many of us, our parents, all of us, our children, um, with hearts and compassion and an understanding that however we've learned to think about um, illegal immigrants and aliens and call them whatever names you want. And the president talks about animals and MS-13. And infestations. Um, infestations. Yes, thank you for reminding me of that. terrible verb. But I think in the end, um, Americans are a good and compassionate people. And this, even for um, the age of Trump, was simply a step too far. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I think that there has been so much pro-family rhetoric from that conservative coalition that to abandon it, to not recognize that this was a moment where family was being fractured and destroyed for no good end would have, uh, I think people, that's a, that's a kind of moral dissonance that people can't live with. The other, well, we've I covered, mean, uh, we've covered other moral dissonance where there was talk about family values and bad private behavior being proof of the um, uh, lack of values of a president. And then when the when this president has been accused of that kind of behavior, lots of people were letting him off the hook who used to formerly. Well, say then that you get to the crying children. Democrats. Then you get to the crying I mean, children. Yeah. Piece of it. I yeah, mean, no, that, that's that, what that I think. And I, I mean, the fact right. that and, the, and fact that the, the f- government wouldn't let people into to photograph and wouldn't let the recordings be made knew they knew it was wicked. Family is like basically, isn't it? It's just the basic unit of love and compassion. And to be the author of breaking that apart, it seems to me that was just too far, even for people in the religious community who have otherwise defended the president, when the White House, and this is an extraordinary thing we should note, used the Bible for the first time in this administration, but the attorney general and the spokesperson for the president used the Bible to justify this. That's that was an extraordinary thing that should not pass, that it was used um, erroneously, but was used to justify this is really, and that they could find no support in the religious community for it, I think is worth noting in this saga as well. What do you expect the political impact to be from this catastrophe? Do you think this becomes an issue in the election? Do you think immigration, which has been, I think Republicans think of as a winning issue, 
Uh, has that has this is this likely to flip that issue, or is it is it going to remain a winning issue for Republicans? I think my sense is that this White House thinks that talking about immigration is a lot better than talking about all the other policy changes that they're making, or the the uh, Obamacare rollbacks or the EPA rollbacks. They don't think those are going to be winning political issues, but immigration might be. Does this change that dynamic at all? Well, we've seen that it we've seen that it can be, and we've seen this president reframe immigration in a way nobody thought would be successful, that people thought was was suicide for him when he announced in his kickoff press conference when he talked about Mexico the way he did and the immigrants uh, as being rapists and murderers. They've got a tough um, situation with the 2018 elections, um, although a good map in the Senate that helps Republicans. But um, what do you, what's going to get people out voting? The tax cut doesn't look like it's doing it uh, in terms of creating the kind of off non-presidential year uh, enthusiasm. And really, other than protection for gun rights, immigration is probably the strongest motivator. But strong motivator for the president, but, it, but every member has to then get on this train, has to get on this fight because you need them to turn out for your election. The president can keep people enthusiastic, but to really get them turned out on election day was hard. So I think the thing that's going to turn Trump voters out for some uh, congressman or senator is likely to be their feeling that the system, meaning the press and the Democrats and the elites are all against Trump and they, they're going to turn out to back their guy. That is different, I think, uh, with Democrats who are incredibly enthusiastic, more poll, poll numbers out this week that show a sustained and red hot enthusiasm among Democrats. And this moment will be a very fast way to get any Democrat who might think about, uh, you know, reclining into the Barca lounger to get out on Election Day. And it's not necessarily just the Barca lounger Democrats who are already pretty motivated, much more motivated than in a normal midterm. But the up in the air, not really sure which way they're going suburban women who are going to really be the key in so many different uh, individual house races. They are the crying children demographic. And mm -hmm. I think it's perfectly possible that we will be have forgotten about this set of crying children, just like we forgot about the dead Syrian children and we'll have moved on to another set of as yet unimagined um, Trump administration issues. Democrats will have an incentive to remind us of this. And I think that a demographic that is key to tipping those individual races, this is particularly resonant for. Just a couple more things. I, I want to go back to the moral question uh, of the separation policy. One of the claims that the Trump administration made, and I think the one that they probably were sticking to most strongly was, this is an effective deterrent. This is going to prevent people from coming. It's going to discourage people who would migrate from migrating if they know that this fate awaits them. And I think that that's probably true. That's clearly, I, w I wouldn't migrate if facing that it myself. It, it depends on how desperate you were. And I think that it actually may be true that when this policy was announced, and there's a pretty good information flow right, to um, mm -hmm. potential migrants. We have not seen a diminution of the f people, which is a measure of the desperation. Well, okay, but let's assume for the sake of argument. That it could that, be a deterrent. Let's assume that this is a deterrent. Why is this still wicked? Me. Either of you. I mean, I, I certainly well, know why I know, but I just, I think that th this is something that has to be explained because if, if you say – this policy is actually very effective. If we assume for the sake of argument, this policy is effective, then you say, well, we do effective, we do things which are uncomfortable and unpleasant all the time in the name of effective policy. We imprison people. That is, that's an unpleasant thing to do to people, but we say we do it because it, it has this, you know, deterrent effect and it makes the country safer. So why is that not true in this case? Well, I'll try and whack at it. And then Ruth, you because we appreciate balance and the punishment should fit the crime. I mean, there are two different classes of people, but we don't have the capacity to handle anybody who wants to come in. So we have to come up with an orderly process, hopefully an orderly process that ranks claims so that you can effectively adjudicate if somebody's coming because they've been forced out of their country uh, by gang violence and somebody who's just coming to get a to have a better life economically those are both um desires we might um find appealing but one is more acute and and uh, has and in a world of limited resources you have to 
prioritize. So we have to weigh whether sending them back into more violence is something we want as a national priority. But while we figure that out, you shouldn't add to their woes as a general American principle. And let let me add my whack at this. Um, There's lots of things that we could do to deter people from coming to our borders. We could announce that we're going to line people up against the wall and shoot them if they attempt to cross the border. We do not do that. Um, Even if we thought that deterrence was effective and draconian responses were effective to deter individual adults, we do not visit the effects of that draconian deterrence on innocent children. Um, In fact, in the Flores decision, it was determined that these children who are here have due process rights to decent treatment once they are on American soil. The reason we don't visit these bad effects of the, the trauma of family separation on individual children is the same reason that we do not go after the families of terrorists, as the president has suggested that we do. That is actually immoral. You do not go after innocence in in the effort to go after either horrible terrorists or desperate. I mean, if from Attorney General Sessions' point of view, evil, punishable lawbreakers, or from my point of view, desperate parents. Right. All true. In my mind, this is not really about what we do to others. It's what we do to ourselves. It's it's in, independent of the cruelty that we're inflicting on these people, which is unnecessary and stupid and damaging, and 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 will will bounce back at us a hundred different ways. Uh, it makes us it makes us sinners. It makes us worse sinners than we already are. It makes us morally culpable. And we should avoid. I don't know. It just—it's so fucking unnecessary. The it, it isn't. It's um, we've had a lot of talk about patriotism and where patriotism comes from, and I'm interested in why and in the p- things and feelings people get from being an American and what that what that does at an emotional level. Uh, and what I heard a lot this week is people who um, on the left and and particularly on the right um, saying, "Is this?" can this be possible that this is the country that I'm a part of and that people's conception of the things that they are a part of and a citizen of that this piece cannot fit in it. I kept hearing that over and over. again. All right. Last uh, question on this to change the subject slightly, which is that secretary Nielsen, uh, Homeland security secretary went to a Mexican restaurant in Washington DC this week and was heckled and harried and basically driven out of the Mexican restaurant. People yelling shame at her, uh, is that okay? Is that first of all? Is that wise politically? Second of all, is it in fact uh, justifiable? So I am generally um, little miss civility, and we all need to kind of turn down the temperature and learn to get along and figure out ways to have civil discussions with one another. So I can't kind of um, endorse driving people out of restaurants. Uh, I have to say, having watched her kind of merciless, this is, you know, we have to do this. There is no choice. This is, of course, before there was a choice. Um, Press conference. uh, I think it was the same day she was driven out of the restaurant. I have to admit to taking a small amount of private personal pleasure in seeing her driven out of the restaurant. So, well, I'm not endorsing it. If there was ever a time for this to be done, this probably was it. John? I'm, um, I feel like we are on the road to an escalation here for this reason. Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm essentially avoiding your question, which is that the president apparently, according to reporting, um, was reacted to the negative pictures that he saw. Not necessarily of the kids being taken away from the border, but maybe also that, but the 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 kind of the protest that um, was was a part of those pictures, and that's uh, apparently what changed his mind, or at least changed his mind through either his wife or his daughter. If if we've already seen what communicating with the president through the television has done to our uh, media environment, if this is the only way to get the message through, it's going to encourage greater and greater acts of demonstration, protest, so forth. Um, and I think that just spirals and keeps going. Um, well, but so John, I would draw I feel a like, huge distinction. I mean, demonstration protests are the very heart of of being a citizen. I mean, is, is our patriotic oh, yeah, no, duty no, to, and I think that, but I would say that they're two different, that, that there's the, we're going to rally in front of the White House or we're going to put a, a ring, a human fence around the Walmart where these children are. And that's different from 
harrying an individual government employee yeah. in her private uh, no, life. This, I, and I don't know if you're you, making you're you're making precisely the point I'm making, which is that if um, if the normal kind of protest, the women's march, um, the ringing the Walmart, and all of the rest of that doesn't get through, then escalation has to continue. I don't know whether the Kirsten Nielsen um, uh, protest was, um, I mean, I can, I can see that both ways. I don't, I think. I'm not sure uh, it's, 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 I'm not sure. I I took some kind of private pleasure in it. I'm not sure I actually think it's the most effective way to achieve the goal. Right. But I think the goal is to make him back down. That he is not a backer. He is a backer down in the face of maybe, Ivanka Trump and the first lady telling him yeah. to back off and in the face of the entire um, Republican Senate saying, whoa, and in the face of horrible pictures, not in the face of attacks on his Homeland Security Secretary. That's the kind of thing that strikes me as um, make, making him more lo- much more and likely more, to dig in his heels. Interest. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a very good point. I don't think, though, that it will um, I, I, I don't think the fact that he was moved by images will decrease the appetite for creating more images, whether they are the precise ones that work or not. Okay. Slate Plus members, of course, get extra segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts as part of their membership. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member. We appreciate that. Today's extra segment that we're going to do, bonus segment, is going to be about the World Cup, not about the World Cup of soccer. We're going to talk about what other kinds of World Cups there should be. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We'll stop it. That is what FBI investigator Peter Strzok. Is that how you say his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure because I haven't heard it said. I've only read it. Peter I think you, you, the way you say his name is the lover. The, the, well, I was te- that's what he texted to his paramour, his paramour. That's the other word that you hear a lot these days, his paramour, whose fellow agent Lisa Page about Donald Trump back before the election, talking about the election of Trump, that they would stop it. If only instead of talking about the election of Trump, they'd been talking about the in- endless investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. So we come this week to a 568-page report from the FBI's Inspector General Michael Horowitz about how the Bureau investigated the Clinton email scandal. This report, in turn, has prompted a Republican call to investigate the investigation. So we would have an investigation of an investigation of an investigation, which is the circle of life here in Washington. So, uh, John, what roughly did the Horowitz report find? Why was it important? Or was it important? Well, it was it was important. I think the... It basically found that James Comey shouldn't have done what he did in his handling of the, of the Hillary Clinton email investigation. He had found that the behavior of Strzok and his uh, the woman with whom he was having the affair was totally unprofessional and um, and that he uh, behaved in a number of ways that were deeply unprofessional. But in the end, it didn't affect the um, the conclusion in the Clinton case. That's that's basically those are the big claims. Yeah, I mean, just to me the import of the Horowitz report was Comey should not have done what he did. Struck and Page should not have texted what they texted. If anyone was hurt, however, in the end by all of this behavior, it was Hillary Clinton and not Donald Trump. And uh, that is just something that cannot be undone. You can't undo that damage. And then for Donald Trump, who um, benefited, if anything, from the Comey misbehavior, insubordination was the word, one of the words that Horowitz used, to go out and claim that this report vindicated him as if it looked into his campaign's behavior with respect to the 
Russia probe in any way um, is just classic Orwellian Trumpism taken to the max. And then you have the continuing spectacle of both Republican members of Congress insisting that various folks should be prosecuted and locked up, the president's lawyer talking about how Peter Strzok should be criminally prosecuted. I do not know what for. Um, And then, you know, once again, last night at the president's campaign rally, chanting lock her up about Hillary Clinton. If there is any takeaway from this report is that there is no basis for arguing that Hillary Clinton should be locked up. And for goodness sakes, could we just drop it already? I know that's not going to happen. Also, Strzok was Absolutely incompetent as a deep state opponent of Donald Trump because not only did Donald Trump win the election, but Strzok was in possession of a great deal of information related to the investigation into the ties between associates and members of the Trump campaign in Russia, which he could have leaked and could have presented to the public at any number of times during the campaign and didn't do it. There's one um, small-ish episode which has to do with Anthony Weiner's laptop and the discovery of additional um, Hillary Clinton emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop and whether Strzok's expressed animus towards President Trump affected a decision to hold off on uh, going after the information on that laptop for what would have been a pretty short period of time. The... Inspector General, if I'm getting it correct, basically said we can't say that his that that his decision to hold off on this. So there were some other reasons that they were told um, by the Southern District or the FBI up in New York to hold off on it. We can't say that wasn't affected by his animus. But the end result of that, once again, was worse, as it always is, worse for Hillary Clinton, not better for her, because the delay in Going after the information on that laptop meant that Comey's fateful letter, which shouldn't have happened, came out 11 days before, I think my number is right, before the election, not 21 days before the election, at which point there might have been some ability to kind of clean it up. So that's the sort of worst set of potential real-world effect facts that you can dredge up in this 500-page report. So one of the the themes in this report and in, in in the Comey book and in the coverage of Comey is so many of the decisions that he made were made against the backdrop of his assumption that Hillary Clinton was very, 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 very likely to win the election. So a lot of what he was doing was to play anticipatory defense for for his agency, for the for the bureau, anticipating that Hillary Clinton would be the president. And so people by people, I mean Republicans in Congress were going to be very uh, curious about what he had done about Hillary investigations, and he wanted to make sure that the, that his agency had acted in a way that that wouldn't be criticized later. Uh, what do you think he ought to have done differently, given that given that assumption? I think he is absolutely right that had Hillary Clinton won the election and had they not been pretty aggressive in the investigation of Clinton, it would have been disastrous for the FBI. I think that is a that is a counterfactual that is correct. Well, from my point of view, the um, because I've been and I've written in somewhat reluctant support at the time of his decision to speak out when the rest of the Justice Department had put itself in a position, thank you very much, Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton on the tarmac, Jesus. not to be able to speak out on this. I thought, you know, from the point of view, not just of the FBI, which um, Comey was clearly trying to protect, but from the point of view of a country that needed some assurance at that time that, yes, a serious investigation had been done, and that, as Comey said, no reasonable prosecutor would prosecute on these facts, I could live with and support what Comey did mostly uh, when the original decision to close that investigation and not to prosecute came out. I think the part where he just clearly went over the line and made a very, for good, for good reasons, for, with good intentions, made a very terrible decision, uh, was with the letter, with the last minute letter. Right. Because That's what that he could have done. Right, but right in, in the heart of know, the election, but, minutes from the election. 
in his defense, if he was operating on the assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win, he was also and making sort of very difficult calculations about how to proceed in uncharted territory. He was in good company. Another person who was in that same position was the president of the United States at the time, Barack Obama, who was constantly worried about whether if he pushed too hard on getting out the word about Russian emails, he was going to be accused of bad behavior. So it was let's hope we're not in that position again. But uh, let's hope when if we are in that position again, that people make better decisions. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Let's turn to two Really fascinating interrelated stories. The first in New York, the second in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Boston, maybe. People like to say Boston. So first, New Yorkers are worked up about a new proposal from Mayor Bill de Blasio to change how admissions work for the city's small number of very elite high schools. Currently, admissions to those schools, which include Stuyvesant and Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, and I can't remember the other two, are based on a single test. And this, a single test that uh, eighth graders take that determines whether they can get admitted to these extremely uh, academically rigorous schools. The result of this test has been that the student bodies at these schools, I think, are plurality Asian, maybe even majority Asian American. Only a tiny percentage of black and Hispanic students in these elite schools. I, th- I think it's 4% at Stuyvesant, uh, which is the, the top school, versus 70% African American and Hispanic for the system as a whole. So the mayor's proposal is instead of having the single test determine admissions, let's instead admit the top 7% from every middle school across the city uh, to these these five elite high schools. This has been met with real anger from Asian Americans who note that most of the Asian American students at these elite schools are from very poor backgrounds and that their parents have made huge sacrifices to help them achieve at the test and the students themselves have worked really hard to achieve at these tests. So that's one story. Meanwhile, there's a kind of parallel story. Harvard College, Harvard University is facing a lawsuit, charging it with discriminating against Asian American applicants. And it this week, the its a counterparty in litigation released documents showing first that it that Harvard hid its own 2013 sh- study, which showed just how much the student body would change if if the school weighted academics more and that the student body at Harvard, I think the percentage of Asian students would roughly double. And that secondly, that admissions officers at Harvard consistently graded Asian students low on personality and leadership traits. That low weighting helped keep down the percentage of Asian students, presumably. So can we start with the the Stuyvesant example, the, the elite school example? My wife, Hannah Rosen, is a was a poor kid whose life was literally changed by her admissions to Stuyvesant. She's somebody who worked really hard and that those elite schools in New York are incredible tools for advancing poor, smart kids. They are, if you look at who's graduated from Stuyvesant and Bronx science and those other schools, it's extraordinary what they've achieved and, and how good those schools are at elevating poor kids to middle-class, upper middle-class life lives. And so I, my view is like tinker with that at your peril, New York. Well, and what makes the Stuyvesant situation particularly difficult is this is not a question of the um, entitled elite versus the poor kids. It's um, actually a question of poor kids versus poor kids because the Asian population that goes to elite schools in New York, including Stuyvesant, is not an um, a entitled socioeconomically 
enhanced population. It's an actual poor population in the city. So they are coming from underprivileged backgrounds as well. What are the, first in the Stuyvesant case, what's the goal of those schools in the larger context? Is it just to educate the kids? As opposed to what? Well, as opposed to, I don't know, uh, graduating a student body that is uh, diverse for the purposes of having a diverse city. I'm, I'm make, making this up. But I'm, I'm just, because if it's only academic uh, qualifications, then it's obvious what they should do. I mean, then the top people on the test should get in and that's that. Uh, but, but, but de Blasio is trying to weigh it against some other set of values and desires. Maybe not. Maybe well, it's just purely political. But John, I don't think it's anywhere near as easy as you're making it sound because Harvard is an island unto itself, right? Or maybe it's part of an Ivy League, but um, it gets to, it has responsibility to its own student body. The New York City public school system has a responsibility to all the students of New York. And so if it's operating a set of elite schools, it needs to think about the purpose of those elite schools within the context of the larger student body. Well, I mean, there's two um, issues I'm taking with what you said. One is that the, the the goal can't simply be enhancing the academic excellence of one individual school, that it should be thinking about the broader community. But also, you're sort of assuming that the single determinant of academic excellence, if that is the only determinant, is one day of testing. Um, which yeah, I no, you actually, got it totally I backwards. I, oh, well, you got totally backwards <laughs> what I was trying to do. John was trying to no, sorry. get you to make you the get, point you just made. I was trying to get you to make the point you just made by teeing up the question. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you found the trap, yeah. although you totally got the but, uh, wrong end of the telescope. I was trying to, <laughs> to say what other than pure mental horsepower does a, does, a, does a mayor, does a city, does a community have to keep in mind when they're admitting people in, but a, in here's schools? What I would say. here's what I would say is, if you if you said these five elite schools are the only elite schools in New York or the only selective schools in New York and 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 the only access that anyone has to any selective school is this test, then I think the case for changing how they admit students is very, very strong. But in fact, there are the scores of other selective schools in the New York City public school system. Now, they're not as r- rated as highly as, as Stuyvesant is. They're probably not quite as academically rigorous as Stuyvesant, but they're better and they, so that students have more of an opportunity to get a better education than they might from their bog standard local public high school. And and so the idea that this is the only route to academic achievement in New York City public schools and the only forum for diversity in New York City public schools, I think, is wrong. I think there are other places. And to me, I think – like we uh, – why can't there be diversity in what kind of schools you have too? Why can't there be a set of schools which say it is purely this hyper academically rigorous and we're going to make it off this test score and that's this is going to be one set of schools and then we're going to have dozens of other schools that admit students based on other criteria. And the, and some of those students some of those schools could admit based on this, you know, if you're in the top 5% of your middle school class. I don't see why the the need for to have a diverse, educated citizenry and to give opportunity to students uh, who, who, from every background, requires that you take an incredibly effective school and modify it. I think there are, you can act by making these other schools selective, by having more selective high schools throughout the city, by creating more opportunities than simply by modifying what Stuyvesant and Bronx Science are. But you assume that there is only a choice between the current Stuyvesant et al. way and the de Blasio way. No, um, I think there's a total baby that, splitting. There's a baby yes. split. There's a baby split where you say – Isn't that you, what you're suggesting? No, I'm saying – no, I was suggesting you just keep the test for Stuyvesant and then – but you have all these other schools that can admit students in other ways, which are also selective schools. They just don't have – they're not as good as Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. But there's a reason that lots of institutions of higher education are moving away from – um, excessive or sole or even at all reliance on standardized tests. I say this as someone but you who, don't have who to, but performs not ev- extremely well on not standardized ev- not tests. Every, but, but so but, what? So what? But, but that doesn't mean that every school has to move away from Stuyvesant it. Why can't Stuyvesant look at its current population and say, whoa, is this 
best for us? Is this best for our city? Is this best for our student body? Should we think but about? Why do you should have we to look think at about? Stuyvesant should as we a, in, think as about a different? As you say, it's holistic. Well, there are hundreds of other high schools in there, the system. Yeah, there are and, hundreds of other colleges, but everybody wants to get into Harvard. So why doesn't it look and say, is is our traditional way of admitting people creating the best student body for us and creating the best student array of student body for the New York City public school system. I think that the um, from what I've read of uh, the mayor's suggested approach, which is the sort of Texas-like, let's take the top 7% of everybody in the city, that's going to end up because some of these schools are so massively underperforming, that's going to really end up with a bunch of Stuyvesant kids who honestly shouldn't be Stuyvesant kids because the rest of the school system is completely disserving them. So that's probably not a good solution. But I think that the um, either orness of this debate is where we're probably falling off. And there should be a better admit uh, there. Certainly somebody could come up with a better admission well, system to Stuyvesant that might create a different um, a more diverse student well, body. Y- yes, you baby split by you say half of the student body is admitted on test alone, and then we take the top three percent from every middle school. Maybe it's it's that system. Um, but I guess I just I am I'm, cons- I'm I'm a conservative in a lot of ways, and one way in which I'm conservative is I think this is an institution which is which is highly meritocratic. It is it is in no sense the exclusive way that form a public education in New York City. It's in no sense the only way someone gets a good education in New York City. And the idea that you should modify it or change something, which has been incredibly effective at at raising up striving poor kids for generations, you should modify it in a way that that has that has an uncertain outcome seems to me a mistake. It seems to me you should be very, very cautious before you make a change like that, because I think there are other ways to make sure that black and Hispanic kids in New York City get better educations than than by saying, "Well, we have to we have to undo this thing which has been very, very effective for the city." What do you think? Um, what do you think uh, about the Harvard case, Ruth? Uh, Is it the same as the discrimination against Jewish students in the early twentieth century? Um, in the mid 20th century, it is a little bit, and so I hear my father yelling about um, from the grave about um, how this shouldn't be tolerable. H- however, um, unlike Stuyvesant, whose primary job it is to um, select out students of simple academic excellence, so have I now now fallen out of your trap, John? Um, yes. Oh, good. I knew I could get myself out. Um, Harvard has a, a different set of goals in in assembling its student body, goals that the Supreme Court has said are legitimate goals. It wants um, leadership qualities. It wants um, athletes. I think the big question that we should be talking about and the um, the the real way to kind of go after this in a way that is fair to everybody, including Jews, including Asians, including minority students is the damn legacies because <laughs> if you got rid of the damn legacies um you would open up a lot of space and i understand why col- colleges want that for a you know look at harvard's endowment and you know why the legacy preference is so huge um but that's the piece of the greatest um unfairness here is the self-perpetuating nature of the legacy part of the student body i Agree with that, although I think the athlete preference is even worse. But, I don't understand why, having just spent uh, time with a child who is college-bound and going to visit colleges, the amount of resources, money, and attention that's being put into dinky athletics at all these colleges seems insane. And the idea that the fact that you're you're a decent fencer or that you're a a you know a, a adequate volleyball player. Uh, should get you a huge preference for admission. It seems incredibly I, I, stupid. I mean, I think that if you want to have people who are good on teams or good at leadership, the athletics is in no sense the only way to find people who are good at that. You can get people who are good at debate teams or good at robotics competition teams. And the overweighting of athletes 
I I thought when I was in college and which was at Harvard and so it's a direct experience. The athletes were just manifestly worse students. It, like the the overemphasis on athletics and the the amount of time and energy that people spent in it seemed totally misguided and stupid. And I would I would I, ditch I that. throw that in with legacies as an endowment boosting device, among other things. Yeah, but it's yeah. but, it, I, I, but I, I think I, it's I totally it's, it's not justified as as the legacy preference isn't really justified, nor is the athletic preference justified. But does that but except except ahead, if they say we need the money and we need the to keep going and to keep going in the manner to which we become accustomed, so then it is justified. Well, uh, I mean, first of all, Harvard has a thirty-seven point six billion dollar <laughs> endowment right now, so it 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 right it could but become it, a, it could become going. accustomed to going and slightly. <laughs> and also, Harvard athletics just aren't good enough to justify that. It's not that I I I can see that case for University of Alabama where. Right. Alabama football is such a huge driver of knowledge and support for the University of Alabama. That is not true of Harvard. I mean, okay, yeah, they've got crew teams that are really good, but does that honestly move the needle on things? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Can't believe it does. But going to your leadership point, Ruth, I think what's that the um, that Harvard has a right to construct a class which is going to have leaders in it and and not simply simply to look to academic achievement. I think what was so unsettling to me about the data that came out or the research that came out was that these admissions officers were downrating Asian students on these leadership qualities. And that was surely because of some form of bias. I can't believe that that's actually the case, that these Asian students aren't leaders in the way that white students are leaders. Uh, So maybe there's some bias in there. I also um, have read some things that suggested that in there that there were things that you don't think of as personality that was in there that were in their personality rating traits that might have included um, sort of pieces of the legacy preference. So look, it is a limited resource um, admission to Harvard admission to Ivy League schools. There are imperatives that pull in different directions for diversity and for academic excellence. Anybody who looks at these Harvard, this Harvard story and says, this is an easy one for me to resolve is from my point of view, just like not thinking about this hard enough because this has always been for me the one of the hardest public policy debates around. The other piece, I, th- I think the ability to access Harvard uh, has not grown at all because there's or it, sh- it shrinks every year because it it hasn't expanded with population and that that's a problem that's a real problem uh, which I think they could they could go a long way to fixing some of these issues if they were willing to expand the undergraduate population. Wouldn't wouldn't they just end up with a sort of bigger version of their same problem because if you look at the numbers um, if you took out the that the Asian population would double, right, if you did it simply on academic qualifications, then and then you'd have to really um, expand the school dramatically to get to any point of fairness. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are hoarding dreams, you are a dream hoarder, as so many in our class and of our background, when hoarding dreams and hoarding alcohol on our porches. What are you going to be chattering about, Ruth? So I am going to be drinking a lot of cocktails over the weekend, so I need a lot of chatter. So one thing I'm going to be chattering about is this lovely story that was in my newspaper, the Washington Post, about 94-year-old Bob Dole, who continues to spend his Saturdays at the World War II Memorial greeting fellow veterans of World War II and basically introducing them to a memorial that he was uh, instrumental in helping create. And it's just uh, that that Dole does this sometimes with Mrs. Dole, sometimes by himself. He says he has a better time by himself because then he gets to kind of be more flirty with the ladies. And his wife, to her credit, seemed perfectly fine with that. Um, was just a kind of lovely story to me about an uh, old-time politician, a public servant, a different set of values, and it was just a real antidote to the horror stories of the week. The other thing I'm going to be chattering about when people start looking around and getting tired of hearing me wax eloquent about Bob Dole is why we rely on our first ladies and our 
first daughters and things to express the um, softer, more feminine, more empathetic viewpoint about, for example, children separated from their families. Um, why that certain Laura Bush, um, former first lady, wrote a very powerful op-ed for the Washington Post this week. It helped, I think, um, spur the outcry and debate. Other first ladies um, followed suit. But where were the actual presidents? Why don't men get to, why don't, why aren't men speaking out about I this disagree. Too? I disagree with your analysis. I think it has to do with that if you are a former president, you wade into con- current political issues with great trepidation. And it is, we don't want to be a society where our former presidents are constantly talking about the, the pressing issues of the moment. And I, I think that, that they are very reluctant to do it and that, that they're, First ladies, their wives don't have the same restriction well, on them. Maybe that explains that. I have that, a third. It, go ahead. Well, no, I have a third take, which is that it's because presidents weigh in or are carted on stage, whether they weigh in or not, that that the first ladies who have always been treated sort of above that, even when they were in office, they are they are accorded a certain kind of respect that is separate and apart from their husbands. Um, that they they have a special weight and moral value, and it's the and it's a surprise when they speak about, speak out about anything at all, which gets people to sit up. And because they have not been involved in the muddy politics, they have a little bit more weight and value. So that's why. Also, that's why good I theory think it happens. But then, why did Donald Trump specifically mention that? Uh, Melania Trump and Ivanka Trump had been among those beseeching him. There is this kind of feminization, genderization of empathy that I'm not sure is, I think is particularly well, healthy. He, he well, th- he, the only reason he thinks it's legit to show empathy is if his daughter or wife gives him cover because he doesn't – he thinks it's weak otherwise. I well, think- it is weird that that – just to bully into this conversation, it is weird a little bit to think that – He's justifying what he's doing on the grounds that it is being empathetic to their cares and concerns. In other words, shouldn't the empathy that drives you (laughs) to act be the empathy of the pain being visited upon these children? He outsources his empathy. John, what is your chatter? My chatter uh, comes from a a, a frequent listener. Uh, We'll call him Robert Bolt, who introduced me to this app – and the app is called Radio. Uh, that's radio with five O's afterwards. And what it is, it's very simple and elegant and wonderful, which is it's a map of the world. And in and then the, below the map of the world are a number of decades. So you can go all the way back to 1900. And if you pr- pick a decade and pick a place on the earth on the map, uh, it will then play a song from that time period um, that was playing in that country in that time. Um and it's a delightful both geographical trip around the world and, you know, a kind of time traveling. You can just lose yourself for hours listening to great music over the course of history. And you can also select by slow, fast, and weird, which are the different um, categories of the kind of music that would be played when you pick, you know, what was what was huge in, in uh, Greenland in 1950. That is by cool. the way, in Greenland in 1950 was Lars Svensson. That's very nice. Thank you. My chatter. So I have a bit of good news, a bit of good news for the country, which is there was a wonderful story yesterday. So Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway are teaming up to create a new healthcare company, an innovative healthcare company. What it's going to do, slightly unclear, but they announced their new CEO yesterday. And their new CEO is Atul Gawande, who is a one-time Slate writer, a New Yorker writer, uh, a surgeon, uh, author of tremendously great books about death, about checklists, about healthcare innovation. A tool is, I, I, Ruth, I, th- I think I see you nodding over there. A tool is maybe the smartest person I've ever had the good fortune to deal with. I think his writing is a model of clarity, and he is somebody who is just committed to making things work better in the world. And so, if there is any person who, when given control over a significant chunk of the U.S. healthcare system, might actually make things work better. It is a tool. So I am very heartened by the news that he's going to be running this company. That's our show for today. The Political Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. The big news in Gabfest world, honestly, is that Jocelyn, who had hair that was 
feet long, miles long, has cut her hair and is now is dashing. She's now extremely dashing and almost unrecognizable in her dashingly short hair. That's big news. We should send a photo out. Josh. You we should, should send, send a photo send to a before, me at least a before after photo. I but I I'm this you were you were describing something with which I'm unfamiliar. And, it was and, amazing. Yeah. It was it was I maybe we'll send a photo of Jocelyn. The record will reflect some blushing. Yes. Anyway. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest for John Dickerson and super sub Ruth Marcus, who is always such. It's so great having you, Ruth. I love coming. It's so much fun. You're you're just like a. You were born to gab. <laughs> Many people have said that. Uh, I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week and come to our. July 18th show in Philadelphia. Go to slate.com slash live. Get tickets for that. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.